Welcome back to Gems with Genesis Amaris Kemp. With me today is Paul Granger. And here's a bit about Paul. So Paul is a man after God's own heart. But before anything else, Paul is a child of God and an ambassador of Christ. He has learned that these elements of his identity supersede and shape the rest. One of the ways God has invited him to live out the call to love God and love others is through the shepherding gift, providing pastoral support, creating space for conversation and community, and advocating for those that may go unseen. Functionally, he has spent the last two decades serving with the various ministries and now serves full-time alongside YWAM in loving his neighbors in authentic ways. He also loves to create, whether it is his podcast, Where Did You See God, writings or videos. He loves spending time with his wife and kids and they see their home, which God gave them in a crazy way as an important piece of how they love their neighbors as a lifestyle and without further ado welcome paul to gems hello and it's good to be here genesis <laughs> thank you paul so paul i want to know how did you get involved with shepherding and your pastoral gifts was it something that was already rooted in you or did you grow up in a household that was religious as well as spiritual? Or what did that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll start with the, the second piece of what you said. Growing up, my mom always had a very strong faith. I mean, I went to church as long as I can remember, you know, was baptized as an infant. And so God was always a part of my life. And my mom is a big credit to that because she lives out her faith daily. It's very authentic to who she is. And, you know, it's interesting as far as the shepherding gift, pastoral care, I grew up knowing, I grew up knowing that pastoral care was a thing. I didn't know what shepherding was other than with sheep. And it wasn't until I got older that I began to hear that language and it began to understand a little more deeply what that meant. And so shepherding comes from the passage that talks about the spiritual giftings of some were created to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds, and some teachers. And it really wasn't until the last few years that I began to really press into what that shepherding piece meant in my life, how I was recognizing God had equipped me in that way. I mean, looking back when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was a young adult, I could see ways that I would just naturally be there for people, not even in an intentional conscious way. But looking back, I'm like, oh, man, I ended up being in positions of supporting people an awful lot. And now I know it's because there's stuff in my spiritual DNA, ways that God had created me to function that just I naturally bend towards, that I'm naturally gifted around. But I would say maybe five years ago or so, our church started pressing into those different gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, and creating ways for us to dive into where do we see those giftings play out in our lives? Where is our natural bend? And as I started to look into that, as I started to learn more of the language, the, the theology behind it, it became clear and clear that, okay, yeah, like God did put something in me that naturally wants to come alongside others, that naturally wants to provide support for others. 
The thing is, is that in that journey, it also helped me to press into what God actually intended for that versus what we understand it as, right? Like pastoral care for us is, you know, you meet with the pastor and the pastor like says, how you doing? Oh, that's hard. Let me pray for you. And I think we miss the shepherding piece of that. Like we are a culture that likes things to be fixed, right? Like if there's a problem, the number one goal is to fix it or to eliminate the problem or to find a way to not think about the problem, but problems need to be eliminated. When you think of shepherding, that evokes something different. Again, I talked at the beginning about a, a shepherd leading sheep around. The role of a shepherd isn't to just get rid of the sheep or to quickly get the sheep where they're supposed to be. It is to walk with the sheep from where they are to where they're intended to be. And the shepherding gift is meant to be that as well, to walk with somebody where they are, as they are, no matter how messy the situation, and to walk with them, to walk alongside them towards where God is leading them to be. And that's the piece that we miss. It's that walking alongside. And without that, we sometimes leave people hanging. We sometimes leave people alone. With that, we find a lot of messiness because shepherds have to walk through the same muck that the sheep walk through, have to get dirty with the sheep, have to face the same threats, right? David is talked about as a shepherd in his early life. And he's, before he fights with Goliath, it's mentioned that he's fought lions and bears and other like intense animals. Like as a shepherd, he had to face threats that he wouldn't have had to face if he was sitting at home. But because of that role of a shepherd, he had to be face to face with something that could destroy him because he is there for something other than him. Mm-hmm. And so that's the piece the last years that I've been pressing more and more and more into is what does it look like to live out this gift, but to recognize it's a long game journey. It's a long walk in the company of others. And it could cost me a lot, but somehow God, the good shepherd, the capital S shepherd is walking with me as I'm walking alongside others. And so it's something I'm still learning a lot about, but the more I learn, the more I realize how deeply it's threaded into my life. I like that. And I like how you painted that visual picture so we could kind of visualize what that looks like in your life, Paul. But I also want to go a little bit deeper here. We we knew about your childhood, that you were raised in a household. Your mother depicted what a Christian household was or what a religious household was. Was your father there as well or was he absent? And yes. did that affect you? Yeah, so I, what I remember about my father, so see, now we're getting a little Easter egg, something's going on here. Um, I remember him being a loving father. My mom said he used to be a Sunday school teacher. Uh, So from what I know, I had a, a strong fatherly figure in my life. Unfortunately, when I was five years old, he ended up passing away from a heart attack. It was very sudden and unexpected. Uh, as, as I remember it, it was our first night in a new house. I, you know, as a five-year-old remember there being something that woke me up and I went to the bathroom window and looked out and saw some police lights flashing. Uh, but I didn't understand what's going on. My brother's 13 months younger than me. He didn't understand what's going on. And I feel like I remember seeing maybe somebody walking my father to the police car or, or something like that. It's all vague, but the next memory I have 
is waking up at our old neighbor's house and my mom and the neighbors are quickly dressing my brother and I. And I, you know, recognized that my dad wasn't there. And so I asked my mom, you know, where's, where's dad? And as I remember it, she said something to the effect of, well, he had to go to the hospital, something went wrong. And, you know, while he was in the hospital, there is a door that led to heaven and the doctors opened the door and let your dad go into heaven. And, you know, she's trying to find some way to explain the sudden death of a father to a five-year-old. And as a five-year-old, I'm like, I mean, that sounds like a good, I mean, heaven's good. And like, I, I couldn't grasp loss at that point. Um, my grandfather tells me that at the funeral, I looked to him and said, well, are you going to be my dad now? Like, I knew that there is this father role that had to exist, but I still couldn't grasp what loss was. And I mean, it was years before I really started to recognize the ramifications of that loss. And even longer before I really started to dive into what does that mean about who I am? Um, you know, one of the ways I saw it playing out was my mom remarried and I just internally would not, would not accept my stepfather as my dad, would not do it. Uh, I would not call him dad. Uh, I would call him by his first name and I wasn't trying to be mean. And I don't think I even fully understand, understood what I was doing, but there is this tension, this resistance because I had a dad, and even though my dad's gone, like nobody can replace my dad, but that impacted me as I was going into those middle school and high school years and how I functioned. And, you know, as I went through life, as I got older, one of the other ways I recognized it playing into me is I knew that my father was a good father and I didn't get to experience that. And it was hard looking at friends who still had their dads alive and well and in their lives. And it awoke in me this desire to be for my future kids, what my father wasn't able to be for me. And so I longed to be a dad and I wanted to make sure I didn't jump the gun on that. So I was like, well, before that can happen, I got to get married. And then we got to, you know, look at the timing of that. But then one day, so I always knew it was several years from whatever point I was at. Um, but it was interesting to me that as I went through life, this event that happened decades before, right? This event that happened when I was five and barely remembered or understood or knew anything about life, it, it still wove its way in, even to today. Like I, I still see moments where it's weaving into my understanding of my role as a father or the ways that I function that are a result of not having my biological father or the ways that I understand God as father. And so he both simultaneously played very little of a role in my life and a tremendous role in my life. And thank you for sharing that. And I really wanted to dig deep into that aspect because I heard you talk about your mother, but I didn't mm -hmm. hear you talk about your father. And I think it's very important, especially whenever we step into shepherding as you are or pastoral, because sometimes that can affect how we minister to the people that come into our lives. And with you having a mother from the, uh, the type of background your mother came from, as well as having a father, but losing your father at a young age, you can relate to people who have lost a parent. You could also relate to people who may not have a parent in the household. You could relate to blended families um, where the dynamics have shifted and changed. And I think that's a very important element in being a, past a pastor because sometimes people 
who are pastors, they don't always meet people where they're at. And then you have people who end up with church hurt and they feel like, what's the point of even going to church? And instead of going to the place where it's a saving grace, they're not going to the church anymore because they feel no one understands them and no one is meeting them where they're at or people are casting judgment on them. So you being in the position that you are in, what was the easiest thing about getting into ministry and what was the hardest? Yeah, so the easiest thing is God made it very clear that's that's what he was inviting me into. And I, I believe that started with a foundation of praying. I remember my senior year of college, my friend Dan and I realized, oh man, we're about to graduate. What are we going to do? And I'd gone to college uh, with for a degree in religion and Christian ministries. I started thinking I was going to be a you know traditional pastor over a church. And a year or so in, I a number of things happened that made me realize, well, maybe that's not what I'm supposed to be. But then I get to be a senior and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I got to do, I got to know what I'm doing once I graduate. And so we began to pray and pray and pray. And, and God gave me this piece about stepping just right into serving ministry. Um, and I had an option of going to seminary. And I just remember feeling like there are some people that have this, maybe they're, they have the teaching gifting, right? And there is this natural bend in them to, to dive deep into things, to learn more and then to convey that information. And those with the teaching gifting may have a natural draw to something like seminary. But the shepherding piece had this natural inclination in me not to get more information, but to go and to learn by doing, um, to get engaged and get involved. And so it was just very clear that even if I didn't know exactly what I would be doing, I was going to serve through ministry. And so that part was pretty easy. The hard part is actually learning what that actually means, what that actually looks like, because we're kind of fed these ideas of what that looks like. We kind of experience these ideas of what that look like, and we assume what that looks like, all based on human knowledge. And sometimes those are close to the truth, but if the wisdom of God is foolishness to man, then there's a very good chance that how we understand things isn't going to be accurate to what God is actually doing. A really practical example of that is that businesses function with this idea that a successful business uh, has a very clear thing that they are doing or producing, and it's scalable so that a successful business never stays small. It grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. Well, we apply that same logic, sound logic, to churches and ministry. That a church and ministry has to know exactly what they're doing, what outcomes they're producing, and it has to be scalable. You can't stay small because that's, a, that's fine. It's okay. But a good ministry, a successful ministry, has to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And that's just not how it works, right? Like the, the way that ministry is actually designed to work is someone decides to love God and love others and decides to entrust whatever happens from there to God. And the reason we don't want that is because that often doesn't look successful. In fact, sometimes that can look like failing. I mean, we don't have to look any farther than Jesus. A lot of people who were there when Jesus was alive ended up feeling like Jesus was a failure because for Jesus to be successful, he needed to amass a lot of devoted followers that stuck with him through everything. 
and he needed to not die and he needed to end up kind of gaining more control and influence. That was the idea that people had. Jesus did something very different. He often bypassed opportunities to grow a big audience. When there were large followers, sometimes he would literally just like disappear and sneak away. <laughs> and in the final moments of his life, when he needed a large following the most to amass power, he started saying things that made people turn away from him. John 6, 66, uh, at this point, Jesus has talked about them eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and he's going to die. And John 6, 66 says, and from that point on, many of his followers turned away and never followed him again. Jesus looked like a failure. What you and I know is Jesus was not a failure. <laughs> he was the most successful uh, God follower <laughs> that ever existed. And then he invites us to do as he does. He did as he saw his father doing. Now he invites us to do as he does, to be his disciples. And yet, too often, we shape what we do off of the world's ideas rather than Christ's foolish ideas. And so that's been the hard part for me is, what does it look like to willingly step into a life of ministry, but to do so knowing that will often look like failure to others. It will often not meet the standards of others. And there have been many hard moments where I've come right up against that. And sometimes I've made a wise decision and it still was very hard because people saw me as a failure. <laughs> and sometimes I got tripped up by getting confused about who I really need to follow in this. Uh, but fortunately, just as Jesus was in scripture with the disciples, God is with me today, very patient, very gracious and merciful, <laughs> and is shepherding me, is walking with me through those muck moments because he knows something that I don't about what's ahead. Exactly, because walking with him is not always going to be easy. There's going to be days where, you know, our human instincts get the best over us. And I'm speaking personally. I tell people I'm a WIP, work in progress. And there's days where I'm angry with God because he took my dad from me last year. Mm -hmm. I get angry because I lost my job, even though I know that it was strategic that God had to close that door in order for something bigger and better to open. And had I not been laid off from a Fortune 500 oil and gas company, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you, Paul, because I would be mm -hmm. comfortable making a certain salary, having the perks that I had with oil and gas and et cetera. And sometimes whenever you're going through a transition and transformation, it's not always easy and conducive based on the natural things, what you see around you and the society, because you want the bells and whistles, but sometimes God wants you to get you alone and he will separate you from a period. So you could go through a pruning process where he pricks off things that are not conducive to your personal and professional growth. That's not conducive to your spiritual growth. That's not conducive to you mentally, physically, and emotionally. And it hurts when you go through the pruning process. And there's some times where you just have to get still. And my mom keeps telling me the scripture, be still and know that I'm God. Because I did question my faith, you know, when my dad passed in November last year. I questioned my faith when I lost my job. I questioned my faith when my grandmother passed in, in August this year. And, you know, going from a salary to no salary, having to rely on unemployment and 
having to try to apply um, for different um, programs out there because my husband and I were dual careers and I thought we had it all. But, you know, sometimes God wants you to humble yourself and just press into him and then have faith. And it says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could speak to that mountain and tell that mountain to move. And that's what I'm holding on because I don't know what the end is going to look like. But I know by me being obedient and listening to that still small voice, those gut instincts and having discernment, he's not going to lead me astray. He's going to lead me in the right direction that he wants me to go and not necessarily the direction that I want to go. Not my will be done, but his will be done. And when you think about where you and your wife are and your family, have you ever thought about planning a church of your own, Paul? Uh, so, you know, I mentioned earlier that that being a pastor of a church was my original thought. This is what I'm going to do. And I think one of the things that God began to press on me then and continues to press on me now is that there are different ways that he functions and different ways that he calls us to function that can be outside the norm. And, and what I mean by that is this, I will have, so a lot of the ministry that I do is serving in my local community here that is marked by a high level of um, low-income housing, lower-income families, high unemployment, uh, there's high crime, high drug usage, and there's a number of reasons why that exists. Um, and what God's called me to is to simply be an ambassador of Christ in the midst of wherever he's calling me, which happens to be here. And in a lot of interactions, so I'll pause before I get into that. Because when I say all that, the other piece that I wanted to say and then didn't, but now I'm going to, is it's really hard for the church to know how to engage in those spaces. The very natural space in which a church might engage in those spaces is a helping space, which uh, there's a difference between helping and serving, right? Helping is I'm here, you're down there, and I'm going to reach down and pick you up. Serving, as Jesus demonstrated, is he actually was up here. What Philippians 2 talks about, you know, even though he was equal with God, he did not count equality of God to be something to be grasped, but lowered himself to the form of a servant. So Jesus literally brought himself down to the lowest form and served from that space. And when you're, when you're helping somebody from up here, you can end up looking down on image bearers, people made in the image of God, blaming them for their situations, blaming them for their problems, blaming them if things don't get better. If you're serving, you're actually seeing people more and more as God sees them, as his children, and operating out of love versus fixing. So I mentioned that because a lot of the relationships that I have now are because God's invited me to love my neighbor, not because I'm doing ministry, not because I'm fixing. And sometimes my neighbors notice that that's very different than what they've experienced. And they can see how God works through that. So they end up calling me their pastor. I have one friend who I've known for maybe a decade now that tells everyone I'm his pastor. And I used to correct him because I'm like, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a pastor. And he's like, no, you're my pastor. You're my pastor. And uh, I had a friend that actually was a pastor uh, at the time of the church that I was attending. And he's like, you don't have to have the title of a pastor to be a pastor. 
uh, a pastor is someone that God has positioned to be an ambassador of Christ and serve and love others and to guide others in what it looks like to do the same. And so all that to say, uh, I've come to recognize that I don't have to be a pastor of a church in order to be a pastor in the church, um, the capital C church. And so unless God says otherwise, I, I don't plan on planting any churches, especially because the neighborhood I live in is called Churchill. We have a lot of churches in our neighborhood already. Um, but I think we also have to press into what is the definition of a church, because in our minds, and especially in America, when we say church, we think of a building that's part yeah. of a denomination and is a certain group of people. But church can look like a number of different things, including like uh, this a right gathering. here could be a church service. Right. Like it's just uh, the what it looks like when a body of believers comes together. And so there is a setting uh, through my church. I actually am helping with uh, something we call community Bible study. It's a very simplistic name, really captures what it is. <laughs> it's Bible study for the community. But it was something that actually was started a, a couple years ago. Stopped shortly before the pandemic. I was about, I felt like God was calling me to get it back going again uh, in February, 2020. Plans are in place and then pandemic hit. And we restarted it finally this past summer. But the idea behind it was, as I mentioned earlier, it's really hard for the church to know how to engage with someone who is, say, wrestling with addiction, someone who is involved with prostitution, someone who wrestles with mental health issues. Uh, and these are all things that are very uh, common in my community, a community that has a lot of churches, and yet many of my neighbors don't feel like they've had healthy interactions with the church don't feel like they would feel welcome to walk into a church. And so many just don't. And we wanted to create a space that would legitimately not just be communicated as a safe space, but legitimately be a safe space. And so we already had this foundation, the community Bible study. We got it going back in. And there are a few core foundations that had to be involved in that. One of them was when people would try to call me the leader of it, I'm like, no, like one, I'm a white male homeowner, right? And whether I'm the nicest guy in the world or not does not change the dynamics that that creates if the room might be predominantly not white, if the room might be predominantly not homeowners, if the room might be predominantly not male. And if I'm the leader, then I'm not only coming in with that, but also the history of white males in Christian leadership has not always been a great story. And so there is some intentionality around that, who is at the table, who does have authority. But I also wanted to make sure I point, painted myself as simply one who facilitates. I'm going to make sure that it happens. It's going to, you know, that it's going and that there is something, somebody that's helping to keep the wheels turning. But at any given point, this is the other foundation, is that anybody could end up being the leader at any given moment. And some of the most beautiful expressions of God at work have been when God said to me, all right. I want you to go ahead and prepare something for tomorrow, but hold it loosely. And so, I would, all right, God, I prepare something, I hold it loosely. And then God ends up doing something completely different through somebody else that traditional church might not have given leadership to. Um, but they are able to express the gospel in a clearer way than I could have at that moment. And as I'm talking, I'm thinking specifically of, we had a woman come in who she happened to see Bible on something. 
And she didn't know if she'd be welcome, but she just needed prayer. She admitted right when she walked in, she was currently high. She admitted that she wrestled with um, prostitution. And she also admitted that she had uh, a young daughter and her heart was broken that she was living this lifestyle and she didn't know how it was gonna impact her daughter. She had recently gotten out of um, jail and was navigating what it looks like to get a job after. So she's sharing a lot of these things, things that I have not experienced. And that if I kind of just jumped in and gave Christian platitudes, I could actually harm her. Um, but again, God had told me, hold things loosely. And across the table was a friend of ours who had been uh, connected with the church a couple months prior and had really come to experience God's love through not just God, but the community that God had created. He had experienced many of the same things that she had experienced. And he was able to look at her with such authenticity in his eyes and like see her and tell her how beautiful she was, how God saw her as beautiful and how much God loved her. And, and I'm just sitting back like, I could never have communicated the gospel as beautifully as my friend just did to this woman that he didn't know. And he gives her a hug at the end. And it's like, and for me, that was the expression of pastoring as we understand it as a singular person. There is a place for that. The Bible talks about people in spiritual leadership, but pastoring can also look very different if we're willing to trust God and who God will use because even Jesus chose a group of pastors that no one else would have chosen. Like you choose a Pharisee to be the spiritual leader, not the fisherman, <laughs> the Pharisee, not the tax collector. And so, yeah, will I ever plant a church? I don't know. If God tells me to, sure, I'll go where he leads. But at this juncture, I'm just following his lead. <laughs> I like that. So you're just allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through you. And two questions as we wind down, Paul. So where you are currently living right now, did you and your wife strategically pick the area that you live in? And what did that look like? So either yes or no. And then depending on how you answer, I'll dive a little bit deeper. Yeah. Uh, I think the easy answer is, is no. All I knew that God had given me was to serve in uh, like an inner city context, but the specific location that was on God. Okay. Beautiful. So you knew that he was calling you to serve inner city and then he led you to where you and your wife were supposed to plant and buy your house and by you being in church hill the area that you mentioned again you're able to fellowship with people who don't necessarily look like you or they don't come from your background but you're able to allow god to work in and through you so you could get the message and love on them from a human perspective while counteracting that with a godly perspective that does not run them away but draws them in closer and they have that encounter of okay this is what a church looks like I don't have to be in the church but I could be outside of the church and have somebody who loves me just as much as Christ loves me and pour into me yeah yeah one of the biggest gifts I think God has given me in terms of where we are located is that I feel like he had led it because uh, there's a long history of people who look like me coming into this neighborhood for many different reasons. Some of them are not good reasons. Like we've had some people who really it is about financial gain and flipping houses and it causes a lot of harm for the community. 
And there are other people who it, the, the reasons were good, the intentions were good, but the thought process of the ramifications weren't really thought out or life changed. And so if I had just chosen to move here, then it could have been because I'm moving here because, oh, that's where the poor people are. So that's where I need to do ministry. No, 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 no. Like that's, that, that's a, a dangerous line of thinking that can cause a lot of issues in how I then perceive my neighbor. Um, but if God says, all right, this is where I want you to be, then I can say, all right, God. And in fact, the house that I'm sitting in now was not one that I was pursuing was not one that we could afford. I've got two podcast episodes that go into the details, so we won't have to go into the story here. But this was a house, not only that God invited us to, but I learned very quickly that it wasn't even for us. The sense that I had was that God wanted this house to be for the community. And one of the most beautiful expressions of that was when I learned that even before we started the process, God had already planted the seed. And a church right across the street here, Caddy Corner, a woman that's lived in the community for 65 plus years, who is invested in the community. She walked out the door of the church after leading a session of the civic association that she started and saw the house and felt like God was telling her to pray that that house would be for the community and it would be for New Vision Civic Association. So here's the funny thing. The community piece was very clear when we ended up getting into the house because we wanted to open our home up to the community in a number of ways. And so that part we could see being, okay, this is the answer to Ms. Thompson's prayer. But then it was like, man, what happened to the other part? Because she thought it was supposed to be for the Civic Association and Civic Association doesn't have the money for it. And clearly it's not happening now. Well, God in a sense of humor knew something we didn't because through a series of events, I ended up taking over when she stepped down. And so now I'm the president of the very same Civic Association. So in a very hilarious way, this house is now sort of owned by the Civic Association, right? But I say all that to say, this house is for the community. These interactions are for the community. And what that means for me is as, a, again, a white male, very clearly, if somebody visually sees me, um, even if I have the best of intentions, even if I'm doing great work, my presence here still has an impact. So on a daily basis, I have to be mindful of that, mindful of what my presence does and doesn't do, the impact it can have, and then knowing how can I then counteract any negative impact that it might have. And it's gonna be an ongoing thing. If I get lazy and don't think about it, I can one day wake up and realize, oh man, I'm just living for myself and made the house for myself. And I missed out on a huge invitation from God to love my neighbor. It's so funny how God's sense of humor works. It's like, show me what your plans are and I'll laugh and I'll tell you what my plans are for you. And then the final question in this episode um, for you, Paul, is how do you ensure that you, your wife, and your kids are doing the shepherding and pastoral as a united front and just showing them this is what the family dynamic looks like and you can have this too? Yeah, it's, it's hard. Uh, one of the biggest reasons is, is because there are expectations that make that countercultural, right? Like your home is your sanctuary where you function as a family is in your backyard. You shut the door to the, the rest of the world so that you can relax. And those aren't necessarily bad things, but if God's called this home to be for the community, that means we have to change our thinking on what happens when somebody knocks at the door at five 30 in the morning, when a neighbor 
you know, comes into our backyard because he's using our garage space to store his lawn equipment and it interferes with, you know, what our kids are doing, right? Like we have to think very differently about what's ours, both our privacy, our physical space, our safety, our security. And it's one thing if I was single, there's a lot more I would actually be doing with this home if I was single and I only had to worry about me. It's another thing if I'm married and I have to think about how does this impact my wife? How does this impact her safety and comfort? And a whole other thing when I've got young kids. But what we've learned is the most beautiful thing we can do as parents is to actually do what Jesus invited us to do, which is to be disciples. So if we are trying to grow and being mindful of what being a disciple of Jesus looks like in our everyday life, not just in functional ministry, but when we're around the dinner table, when somebody comes to the door, then we are modeling that for our kids. And instead of them learning, you're supposed to help poor people, they're learning, you're supposed to love your neighbor. They're learning to see neighbors differently, not as someone to help, but someone to love, not because it's a requirement, but because they're made in the image of God. And every year that looks different. As our kids get older, that looks different. When we have to talk with our kids about shootings, because we've had a couple murders, right? Throwing distance from our house. When we've had to talk about um, alcoholism, because they can smell the alcohol on a neighbor. When we have to talk about uh, all these different things, that looks different, whether they're two, <laughs> eight, or teenagers. And so I think the answer to that is going to be different each year. But the short answer is we as parents need to keep on seeking God authentically and humbly. <laughs> and then we need to continue to live it out in an intentional way that incorporates our kids as part of that ministry and however we can do that. Beautiful. And thank you so much, um, Paul, for just sharing that insight and just hearing the growth, hearing about your personal background, your professional background and where you are now. It's incredible. And I want you to close us out by telling the listeners and the viewers once again, who you are, how they could connect with you and your call to action. Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm Paul Granger. I'm an ambassador of Christ that has a very weird business card if I made him. And I would say this, the, you know, going back to the shepherding piece, one of the ways that God's really blessed me to be able to live out that shepherding gift is through creating content. So uh, if you go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com, there are things that I've written, videos that I made, and the podcast that uh, I've been able to work on for the last three years. And the idea behind that is to not be a source of information or thing to promote myself, because I actually don't like promoting myself, <laughs> but a space, what God invited me to do is to create a space for people to walk together through the hard questions, the hard topics, and the beautiful opportunities. Uh, the current season of the podcast is focused on healing, and we're pressing into a lot of really hard things about how can we say God is a healer if someone's not healed? How can we say God's a healer if I still have to wrestle with this? The last season was a, the questioning series where I, God said, make a space for people to ask hard questions. And I was like, I don't want to do that because that could get really awkward or difficult for me. And God's like, all right, cool. Can you go ahead and do that? <laughs> and I've had some amazing conversations with people who don't know what to think about God. They don't even believe in God anymore. They still believe in God, but it's really hard. And so if anybody wants to press into those kind of topics, 
you can go to the website, you can find the podcast and you can reach out to me. I'm always open and happy to have these conversations with anyone who's just desiring to learn more and more. What does it look like to walk with the Good Shepherd? And there you have it, listeners and viewers of GEMS with Genesis Amaris Kent. You just heard Paul Granger and really unpacked shepherding, pastoral, humanity, Christ, the love of God, loving your neighbors. So many gems were dropped during this segment. So all of Paul's contact information will be in the show notes. So you can plug in to him, his podcast, and the incredible things that he does on a daily basis on the forefront, as well as behind the scenes. Remember that you are a masterpiece. The Potter's Wheel still works. Give yourself grace and mercy. And every day you wake up is better because you have breath in your lungs, you're alive, and that means that there is still purpose inside of you that needs to be fulfilled. And until we chat next time, peace, love, and lots of blessings. Signing out, Genesis Amaris Kemp. Have an amazing day.